This is Tim Plaster from The Game of Thrones, and it appears as if you're listening to Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast. I bet we've been together for a million years. And I bet we'll be together for a million more. Oh, it's like I started breathing on the night we kissed. And I can't remember what I ever did before. What would we do, baby, without us? What would we do, baby, without us? And there ain't no nothing we can't love each other through. What would we do, baby, without us? Sha-la-la-la. My next guest is an actor, a producer, and now an investment banker. He was absolutely one of my favorite actors on the planet while he was doing it. Please welcome Scott Valentine. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Derek, thank you for having me. I am flattered that you invited me on and uh, want to engage in some meaningful discourse. No, and I, and I won't repeat our conversations off air, but we had some great, like, I really enjoy talking to you. We had, like, a pre-interview where we just kind of talked for a little bit and I always tell from the pre-interviews as to how the interview is going to go. So, yeah, man, you're just a really easygoing guy that knows this stuff. So, yeah, man, I really appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Yeah, appreciate so, it. Yeah, so let's get into it. So, yeah, I mean, we talked about how you were born in Saratoga. For those listening, Scott was born in Saratoga. We were talking a little bit about the um, Saratoga racetrack. Let me ask you, so you start acting, I want to say five years old, give or take, in, in, in uh, I want to say mom and dad's garage. Talk me yeah, through the early yeah. stages of your life, Scott, the acting part, up through high school, if you wouldn't mind. Um, you know, it was just more so it was just a lot of fun in the garage with my siblings. Didn't know what the heck we were doing and really had no interest in acting whatsoever again until college and went to the local community college and then realized I could do this. The research I'm doing for whatever we were doing, Congreve or Wickerly or, or Shakespeare, I can use that same same research to do a term paper or some sort of paper due for a normal class, and I can get dates. And I thought, <laughs> this is great. The only thing that can make it better is, I know, <laughs> let's get paid for it. Right. So, uh, that's when I decided, you know, I'm, I'll take, I'll, I'll give it a shot, and let's go to uh, New York and see what happens. So, so as a teenager, Scott, is there any like actor or or movie or show where you're like, God damn, that that actor is that's where? I mean, I know it doesn't pick up until college and later, but as you're growing up, I gotta believe there's somebody or some show or something that really maybe it was like a, it was hidden in you for a long time. But is there anybody that you could think of that had an effect on you? You know what I loved watching early on? Do you remember the movie A Man Called Horse? I do. Yes. And Serpico. Oh, Serpico. How, how does anybody not know Serpico? And uh, French Connection. Yes, Gene Hackman. Yes, yes. So watching those movies, what was the other one, the movie with the uh, the stealing of the diamonds with uh, Laurence Olivier and uh, Dustin Hoffman? Um Oh, what was that movie? 
that was another very, very, very meaningful, very made a big impression. And to this day, those are my favorite types of films. Political thrillers are just, I think, are are so wonderful because a lot of times they're mixed with um, mixed with real events. And you're thinking, oh, my God, this could now I've got to find that movie out. What the hell it was. Marathon uh, Man. Yes. Yes. Marathon Man. I cheated. I'm not going to act like I knew it. I cheated. <laughs> I cheated. All right. I'll own it. I cheated. I cheated. <laughs> Here I am. I'm, I'm trying to get to IMDb as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to wait till you were finished. Yeah. Marathon. Great movies. All, all great movies that I could definitely see, you know, as a teenager growing up and really inspired you. I, I, I could tell those are movies that any actor would be inspired. Right. I mean, that's that's common uh-huh. sense, I would think. Uh huh. So, uh-huh, yeah. So, uh-huh. so you, when you're younger, all right. And I was I was watching a lot of your your interviews um, back in the '80s and '90s. So you ran a lot when you were younger. Am I right with that? Or when you were in your twenties? Yeah, I started. You know, I, I wasn't really. I was not an athlete in col- in high school or college at all. You know, uh, not at all. And not until I moved to New York City from Saratoga Springs, started to get into running, and I loved it. It was just the whole. Running and biking, the the thrill for me is all this energy is created by our own bodies. You know, there's no internal combustion engine. There's no electric motor. Um, it's all created by us. So, yeah, I used to love to run. Loved yeah, it. And, it gave, and that runner's high is real. It really provides a lot of clarity. You know, it gives you that clearness, that clear-headedness. And yes, 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 absolutely. And, yep. and, and for those listening, Scott, Scott attended the American Academy of Dramatic Arts founded by Lee Strasberg. I mean, that's a phenomenal school. How did you like that? How was that experience for you, Scott? Loved it. One of the best times of my life. Loved it. And I'm actually now, we're producing a film at the moment, and the Academy, we've tried to pull them in more and more to be involved with the process to help graduates or people in their, in their company program. Uh, to get more involved with actual the professional side of the business and try to give back to the academy, but it was one of the best times of my life. It was it was to be in the middle of Manhattan and to have that sense of community and the sense of support with your, you know, it wasn't just a class. It was like it was like a company. It was like a family. So loved it. Did you find that part, Scott, eye opening? I mean, at that point, you didn't ha- you haven't done I don't think a ton of acting, but you know, you're obviously you were meant to do it. So, I mean, is it, when you get to the school, do you feel a sense of being overwhelmed or were you kind of comfortable from the minute you got there? I was, I didn't feel overwhelmed. Um, I loved it so much. I dove into it. It was just, <clears throat> it was actually, you know, Derek, I sucked as a student prior to the Academy. And once I got to the Academy, I had a four O, which I was just, amazed but it was truly reflective of when you're doing what you love usually you're going to do it well and and hopefully you're rewarded for it so um that aspect i i i just loved it loved it loved it didn't feel overwhelmed had great classmates had great teachers it was just an all-around great experience for me and i ask all my actors that come on the show do you find that you had a mentor that like really when you were, you know, had questions or you found that really inspired you or was it more Scott, like a team effort? There was one teacher to this day that still stands out. Great guy. His name's John Kostopoulos. 
Um, he was a member of the actor studio. He got me involved with the actor studio after. And the actor studio, if you think about, you know, its history with uh, Elliot Kazan, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, uh, Robert De Niro, people like that. It was such a storied and um, revered institution to practice and learn more about your craft. But Kostopoulos was somebody who really pushed me, pressed me, supported me to go on to be better, to do more than just be, you know, right here on the surface, to really dig deep and, and, and be a better actor and a better person. So as much as, yes, there were other teachers that were great, that were very good and very inspirational. And of course, there was that one bitch, I won't say what her name is, and I believe she's dead now, but um, there was that, that thorn, which actually she was good for being a thorn, but John was very, very inspirational. And I'm, I don't even know where he is today. I, I think he had moved to Chicago, and, and if he ever hears this, I'm, I'm sending him love. Yeah, that's really well said. And, and that actor studio, that's the same one that James Lipton had the show from, right, where you interview guests. Is that the right actor studio where they had the show? Was yeah. Called? Okay. Yeah, I believe. And, and it's funny <clears throat> because a lot of the actors that Lipton had on the show were not members of the studio, so I don't know what the association was. Mm. But I do believe there may have been some – some connection there somehow, some way. And Scott, I got to uh, let's hop on our computers and look it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to say though, you know, we mentioned the mentor you had who clearly had a profound effect on you. But I got—I don't care what you do for a living. Everyone needs that bitch in their life that really either doubts you or you know ridicules. I'm not saying this happened to you, but everyone needs that kind of bitch in your life that or or asshole, whatever you know, that really just kind of. In spot, you know, you don't think I could do it? Watch this. You know, hold my beer. Watch this. Like, don't you agree with that? Everyone needs that person that doubts them. Doesn't that also creates a fire within you? Yes. And either, and there's two ways that people go under those situations. They either rise or they fold. Right. And, and she compelled me to rise. Whereas if Kostopoulos was perpetually supportive, but he was also very difficult and very challenging and would not accept mediocrity. Um, and when you realize it as a as a younger actor, you you know it's it's funny. There's a lot of a lot of kids now. A lot of um, I have four children. They're young men, and when you're trying to give them constructive criticism, when the person's insecure, it can totally be received in the wrong manner mm -hmm. and be detrimental. But if you realize that this person wants better of you, and this person thinks you can do better. So there must be better in there. It's it's an absolute yes. It's a big plus. Big yeah, plus. I agree. I agree. I, I completely agree with that philosophy. And, and and being in New York, I mean, you must have had your your wide the array of odd jobs that you did, right? You must have done everything to get by. Is that? Am I reading into that correctly? <laughs> <laughs> there was one job that was actually pretty quirky. Um, for a long time, I was a personal assistant to some folks, uh, rich folks. Which, um, you know, rich, <laughs> rich people seem to get isolated in their own little bubble and, and out of touch with reality. Mm. <laughs> and there was this one, one family I had to quit working for because they had this little dog, this little terrier, who was a terror. But he was only a terror because the kids kicked him. Oh, and boy. I came in one day and the, the dog's gone. I'm like, where's, I don't know, Fluffy, Muffy, whatever its name was. 
Well, we had him put down. Well, why? What happened? Was he sick? Well, you know, he nipped at one of the kids. Well, your kids are kicking him all the time. Maybe if you taught them to be nice to him, he wouldn't bite. He wouldn't feel the need to protect himself. Oh, no, 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 no. We can't tolerate that around here. So what? You can't teach the dog. It's easier to kill the dog. Mm. So that was done with that. Um, I worked as a cook at many places. But one of the quirkiest jobs was after I was I was run over by a truck, and you'll get to that. I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, couldn't, couldn't really move, not a lot of uh, mobility. So I had a job. I don't know if you're old enough, and some of your listeners may uh, remember pre voicemail, pre answering machines, people had an answering service. Mm. Literally, you gave folks this number if you wanted to leave a message. So everybody had two numbers, or if you were real cool back in the early 80s, you also had a beeper. Like doctors, like doc- ha- like doctors have today, kind of, right? right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Uh, well, there was a at this answering service. There wasn't a lot of doctors. There was a lot of drug dealers. Oh my gosh! Yes. So I didn't know we were taking calls for for drug you know for drug dealers and conducting that business. But and I I can't say I'll say to you offline because I don't want to you know embarrass anybody or get them in trouble. There was quite a few famous folks that were clients of these drug dealers, and that would uh, be calling in, going, "Where is he? I need my." Wow! Wow! So, and at times there was a few customers who were famous, and, and I'll, I'll tell you later who, yep. um, that would come in to the service. It was in this building in the Murray Hill section of Manhattan in the basement. And they would come down thinking somehow that the drug dealer resided in the office where the answering service was. So it was pretty – got pretty zany. And, um, yeah, pretty zany. Scott, and, and no, Scott go ahead. We're, we're like 10 minutes in, and I feel like there's a book here somewhere. I feel like like, like we have a <laughs> – we haven't even gotten to the meat of your career yet, and I feel like there's a book here somewhere. Well, we could do also, you know, this is the Me Too movement time and in, in, in the times that not only women have, have been, what, challenged or, or objectified. There, yeah, yeah was, for sure, yeah. Plenty of uh, folks wanting, going, you know, if you do this, I'll give you that. And it was male and female in people in positions of power. It was a little bit, a little weird. Yeah, I can only, I can only imagine. Of, well, I run out of an office once with my pants around my ankles because this female executive had come over and undid and shirked my pants. I'm like, what are you doing? What? What? No, 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 no. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. Yeah, well, you, you won't get. That's okay. That's cool. I don't want the part. You know. And you Later. hear you hear stories of that too, Scott. Like like that 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 goes on a lot and. It's crazy. It's like it's almost like people in, the, in those positions feel like, you know, because of what I'm doing, I can pretty much do whatever I want. You know, you know, obviously Harvey Weinstein and all these other creeps were kind of doing it. But yeah, I can I can imagine that it happened to men too as well. Yeah, you know? yeah. And there's you know, you say Harvey Weinstein. There was a one of one of the gals suing him was in my class at the academy. Very fine actress, and um. He's just a fucking asshole. He's a pig. I hope he winds up in jail a long time. Um, there's there's more I know about him than is in the press, and I should just keep my mouth shut. But I just I hope he I hope he goes into jail and becomes Bubba's bitch. And yeah, gets a little, you know. <laughs> I think he's on. I think he's on his way. And uh, you know, not to completely change the subject here, because I do want to talk about you know more of your your life here. I have to say, we, we mentioned your running, we mentioned New York and the jobs and, you know, the academy. But, you know, and I'm not being Debbie Downer, we, we, we talked a little bit about this offline. You know, 
you you were hit by a truck, and I have to say, from doing research, I think it took you about three and a half years to come. I don't want to say come all the way back because you know you're, you know you you're dealing with your you know ailments. I mean, hit by a truck is enough to say Jesus Christ. Like, talk uh-huh. about that. So think your life is. So so here I am doing my research late last night, and I'm like, you know, here's this guy. He's going to New York. He's really got his life going well. He's successful. He's at this prestigious school. Things are going well. And legitimately, you know, people talk like in, you know, they use, you know, you know, slang and speech, you know, like hit by a truck. You legitimately were hit by a truck. And hit, hit run over and dragged. For oh, boy. Blocks. So I'll, he was. Yeah. The, talk about that. The a little driver, bit. The, the driver was trying to run me over. That was his objective. He and I had gotten into an argument at the corner of 42nd and 8th. I was on my bicycle. He was in the truck. Uh, there was a young woman walking from the east side of 8th Avenue to the west side of 8th Avenue. And when she got in front of the truck, now mind you, she had a baby in the stroller and a little girl in her left hand. He popped the clutch to make it jerk forward to scare her. She screamed, the baby screamed, the little girl screamed, and they start laughing. And I look at him and I'm like, really? Are you out of your fucking mind? What are you crazy? And he's like, what's your fucking problem? I said, what's, what's my fucking problem? What's your problem? You're going to run over a woman or kids? Fuck you, honky. And I said, great. Not only you're an idiot, you're a bigot, right? I know. You're just, you're pissed off at the whole fucking world. Why don't you run the world over? I'll run you over. Right. And like an idiot, and I'm running at the time, I'm running eight miles a day, feeling great. Um, I thought I could outrun him. I don't know why I didn't just, you know, turn left, go west on 42nd Street. But I continued north on 8th. He hit me from behind, flipped me up in the air, uh, ran over me with the front tire, and then I got trapped under the back tires and pushed for two blocks. Um, and a guy who actually was a nickel and dime drug dealer in that part of town, which was pretty seedy back then, heard me screaming and jumped on the running board and literally started punching the driver to get him to stop. Um, so the guy saved my life. He did. And um, I was uh, paralyzed from the waist down. I died in the emergency room. They brought me back. Uh, I was told I would never walk, never have children. Got four beautiful boys. I know you've seen me walk on on, on film, on TV. Right. Um, and I think it's just a testament to not, oh, gee, I'm a great guy, but, but you know, listen, listen to your own music. March to your own beat. Do what you think you want to do even if doctors tell you or anybody tells you you can't do or you never will um listen to your heart and i I know that sounds like a song but seriously listen to your heart do what do what's best for you i mean did did they did they find this did they arrest this guy was he charged with anything he was arrested charged with uh, attempted vehicular manslaughter went to jail he was seven sentenced to 17 years i don't know if he'd served 17 years um, but that's what he was sentenced to. Yeah. What, what a piece of garbage. Wow. Wow. And, and it's scary that, that there's people like that in the world. I mean, kudos to you for sticking up for that, you know, that mother and child that, that kind of reflects what kind of person you are. But I forgot to add one piece before that. I mean, yes, there was the Academy, but you auditioned and I, I don't know if you got it or you were about to go on it for the awesome, uh, Lords of Discipline. Am I right with that? Oh my God! Yes, <laughs> I, I should have brought that up. I didn't like that. That movie was phenomenal, and I and, and here I am doing my research. I'm like, I could see you in that movie. 
that's where I was literally was on the way to my agent's office, uh, had been offered a part in that movie and also offered a part on a uh, soap opera. My agent wanted me to do the soap opera. Of course, I wanted to do the movie. I think uh, for the movie, they were probably going to pay me scale plus 10. And uh, the agent was probably thinking the soap opera is more long term and more financial security and more money in his pocket, you know? Mm. But um, how, how much? Neither. Go, go ahead, ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, Scott. No, you go ahead. Uh, no, I'm just neither. <laughs> I think you and I are like the same person. We want to talk at the same time. That's okay. That's a good thing. Go ahead, brother. All, All right, good. So, I apologize. No, I'm a, I have a big mouth. I, I don't know when to sh- shut it. But, like, I have to say, how much time is in the hospital? So I know it's a nearly three-and-a-half, four-year recovery. How much time is actually you in the hospital before, like, rehab and all that other shit? How much is just in uh, the hospital? Initially, almost five months. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Got very cozy in the hospital. There's some stories there, Derek. <laughs> yeah. So, so the re- so, so it's it's basically the rest of that is rehab and fighting. I mean, the pain that you must have endured just trying to get back to a somewhat normal life. I, I can't even imagine what that must have felt like for you, Scott. I was just, you know, I, it, it, it wasn't so much pain. It was just I didn't want to be the guy winding up in the wheelchair at 50, 60 years old and going, yeah, I could have, I was a big shot. You know, I just, I didn't, I didn't want that. And I had learned, started doing research at that time on different prostheses that they have for this kind of stuff. Um, and learned of one that they use in Germany that was not approved in America, but was here experimentally and started going to different hospitals, seeing different orthopedic surgeons up and down the the eastern seaboard. I went to Boston. I went to Baltimore. I went to Buffalo. um, Anywhere I could go to meet a surgeon that would look at my x-rays and and contemplate this. And I had some doctors that said, look, we should just fuse your hip. Other doctors that said, you shouldn't even walk at all. You should stay on crutches for the rest of your life. Uh, And then found this one doctor who was aware of the prostheses. And, And oddly enough, he was practicing at the Hospital for Joint Disease, Beth Israel, on the corner of 17th and 2nd in Manhattan. And I would ride by there quite often to go to my girlfriend's apartment and would look at the hospital and go, yeah, what the fuck do you do for my joint disease? You guys don't do shit. Hmm. And lo and behold, I get introduced to this guy, Victor Frankel, who then meets with me, who then at that time my insurance had run out completely. Wow. He said, I don't have insurance. I'm now on Medicaid and Medicare. And he's like, I don't care about the insurance. I want to do this for you. I'm going to do it. He said, what you're going to do for me is after we put this in and when it works, I'm going to call you up and ask you to come and be the, you know, like the guinea pig or the whatever. The guy on the table walking in front of some of his uh, classes, symposiums, whatever they you call them, to show people. Here's his x-rays before, here's after, here's him now walking. And um, I figured I owed it to him for what he did for me to get me walking again. Yeah, that's a a no-brainer for you, right? At that point, I mean, you have to do it. You you got to. How can you not? Right. You know what I mean? Where everybody else is saying, no, 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 this is finally somebody said yes. Let's run with it. Let's get it done. And um, he was a great guy. Him and uh, I think Victor is dead now. The other gentleman who was was credited with doing the surgery was a young guy at the time, Stephen Stuchin, 
and I know that uh, Dr. Stuchin is now retired. So uh, feel very much in debt to them and for the uh, the ambulatory abilities that they bestowed upon me. And, and do you remember? So, so obviously, this is a tough span of time for you. Do you remember the very, you know, the first positive thing professionally to happen to you? I mean, so and, and what I why I ask that is, you know, you had a lot going for you before this, and I, I can only imagine what you're going through rehabilitating your injuries. Do you remember the first time you're like, okay, here's a little bit of sun that's not related to the sunshine, that's not related to my injury, it's it's my career. What was the first good thing to happen to you professionally after that, Scott? Family ties. Oh, good. yeah, that's what I figured. Family yeah. I mean, I, I started auditioning again in New York, and it had gotten to a point, there was a movie that Robbie Benson did with Paul Newman, where Paul Newman played a construction worker, and Robbie Benson was his son. Dad wanted son to go in the construction industry, and Robbie Benson wanted to play basketball. And I remember auditioning for that and coming down to me and I think one or two other guys to play Robbie Benson's buddy. And the final audition, I go in, in New York, and the woman who is the casting director, who still works in the industry now, and I've, I've met her since, she claims she doesn't remember the incident at all. I got done doing the, the pieces for the audition. And this was like going back after 10, 12 times. It wasn't the first audition. <clears throat> and the director and the producer, you know, I, I felt was a genuine reaction going, yeah, that was really good. We'd like to use you. And then her going, wait a second. Didn't you have an accident? I'm like, well, we all have accidents. We all go through shit in life. No, 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 no. You got something with your hip. Yeah, I'm a hip guy. I'm very hip. No, no, no. Aren't you? You, 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 you're, you're made of parts. You're not all human. You've got parts in you. You're like a tinker toy. He can't do this. He may fall apart. And I just, I jumped on the coffee table in the room where we're having the audition and started going, look, I can jump. I can be D. I can do. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. And I walked out of there going, fuck, I got to leave New York. I got to leave here and I got to go to California. I don't want to go to California because I've thought, I very much had a, a high opinion of myself thinking that I was a, a thespian, not some actor. I was a tragedian, you know. Right. I wanted to do, do Shakespeare and Congreve and Wickley, things I had been doing. And my dream was do one movie a year, make a bunch of money from it, and then the rest of the time of the year you do a play. Um, so when this woman had that reaction, I thought New York is so small. I've got to leave here and see if I can get work in L.A., and I came out in L.A. right after the Olympics in 84 and just auditioned like a son of a gun, you know, sometimes 20 auditions in a week. And thank God, the same agent that I had before being run over by the truck, the same one that I was on the way to see to dispute whether we do the soap or the movie, had moved to New L.A. and opened an office out here. And he continued to represent me out here. And he just kept putting me up, putting me up, putting me up. And finally, after 10 months, got the audition for Family Ties, got the, um, the part that was only supposed to be for a week. And towards the end of the week, Gary Goldberg came. Uh, I remember sitting in the makeup chair and him going, uh, listen, you know, we, uh, we kind of like having you around here. Would you, uh, would you like to uh, maybe come back again, do it a couple more times? I said, sure, a lot of fun. I'd love to. Love to come back. And, um, you know, the next four years I was graced with uh, working with some of the one of the funniest guys in Hollywood and some of the greatest writers for sitcoms in Hollywood. 
So got very, very lucky. Yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely going to go with the family ties. But I have to say, man, you ran into some assholes in New York, from rich people killing dogs to insane truck drivers to weirdo casting directors. Like, what would your hip have to do with an audition at all? Like, that is a weird person. I'm sorry, Scott. Well, there were scenes where, you know, we were playing basketball. And her opinion was that I would fall apart while playing basketball. Um, and look, everybody, everybody in Hollywood, Hollywood is a business that a lot of times is not built on actual, what, credit worthiness, abilities. Yeah. Um, Ethics, it, it sounds it, like sometimes too. Yeah. And, and a lot of times I've found there are people that just kind of, they were maybe right place, right time, got the job, didn't really know what they were doing. But if I look the part and act the part, Maybe I can stay here. Mm. So at the time, the woman who was the casting director, she was younger. I think she's only about 10 years older than me. So maybe she was in her early 30s at the time. And she was looking to cover her ass. Everybody, everybody everywhere is always looking to cover their ass. And there are very few folks that will take full responsibility and say, yep, I did that. That's my fault. That's my mistake. Or that's my, you know, <clears throat> that's my faux pas. And, um, I think she was just trying to cover her ass in case of, you know, you don't know. You hear, I, I was laid up for such a long time, and there was a long time that my agent kept going, you know, they're calling for you, they're calling. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get back there. He's like, all right, okay. You know, I remember running into uh, Frank Rodham, the director of Lords of Discipline, and uh, when I was uh, recovering and going to the Y on 63rd Street to swim every day, um, and ran into him one day. I'm sitting outside waiting for the bus to come. He's like, hey, man, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be ready. He's like, okay, all right. And I'm sure he thought in his head, well, he'll never, he'll never, he'll never get there, you know. Um, but Frank was a great guy. They went on, obviously did the movie and, and had its own success. But, um, again, just keep pushing, you know. Yeah. Never give up. And, and it seems like, Scott, that there's no – middle ground for you like at before like even getting family ties i feel like so many highs and lows for you right i mean from you know just having unfortunate things happen and to to achieve this family ties um role i have to believe that for so many reasons you must have been i don't know like i don't want to say even accomplishment because i don't feel like that's the right word i almost feel like between the the the, the teacher you had at the acting at the acting um academy to everything that happened to you to the auditions you had to be like after a while, like effing yes, like yes, like really happy for yourself. You know, it wasn't just it just seemed, and this is going to sound really arrogant, Derek, or maybe ignorant, or maybe both. I just thought I should be acting. I had no idea what the odds were of somebody getting a job and sustaining a career, none whatsoever. You know, my my opinion was I went to school to become an actor. I got a degree saying I'm an actor. Now it's my job to go get a job as an actor. Just as if you say, you know, one of my sons goes to school and gets a degree as an engineer. And he should get a job as an engineer. That's what he trained to do. Now now go do it, you know. Um, so <clears throat> it, it, it wasn't, yeah, I felt great. It felt wonderful. Life was beautiful. Got married, had a kid, had another kid, beautiful kids. Life is good, but then again, on the show and then 
scootling down the road uh, and receiving a very handsome lawsuit settlement from the accident, which gave me a nice cushion when I moved to L.A., but then years later having a business manager steal that money. So yet again, I was just, for so many years, just naive and thinking people are going to be honorable and trustworthy. Right. Yes, good point. <laughs> And, 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 you know, and, and when folks hear that, they're like, oh, what a scoundrel, what a scumbag. Yes, but I should have been watching the store. You know, I feel when we blame others for transgressions that happen to us, we then give up our power. We then, we give everything over to somebody else. And it's like, I couldn't have done anything because Derek was a schmuck and he did it. So now all, my, all the power resides with Derek. Right. Me, yeah. So right. whenever there's any any goodness, of course, uh, but whenever there's a plop of manure put on your plate, you need to look at it and go, "Why was this manure put on my plate? What what did I do to have this put here, or what did I not do?" Um, and that comes with every aspect of life. You know, everybody has shit. Everybody has tragedies or illness or whatever, and it's it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when, and it's a matter of how you deal with it. When it happens. Yes, well said. And for those of you listening, uh, Scott played the iconic Nick Moore on Family Ties. I mean, man, I'm going to tell you, there's. Do, do you feel, I mean, I keep asking you about pressure, and I feel like I shouldn't be, because like you said, you this is where you should have been, and I totally agree. But think about this. I mean, with all the stuff we have now with Netflix and Hulu and all these other things, one-third of all America, and I don't think people realize how powerful Family Ties was, and the fact that it left way on top of its game. It had so much more shelf life, but that's I guess that's a conversation for another day. Um, one-third of America tuned into that show regularly. Think about mm-hmm. that. Think about that number. That is amazing. That was crazy. It was crazy. Crazy. First I mean, time I was on the show, and the next day I went out in public. And not that, oh, I was assaulted and marauded by people, but there were a lot of people coming up going, hey, saw you on TV, hey, and, and I had no idea. None. Once again, sheer ignorance as to what that meant and what was in store when it happened. None whatsoever. Um, so it was pretty pretty naive and, and ignorant on my part and the power of television. And remember, back then there was, uh, what, three, four networks? Not the whatever we have now, 100, right. 200, 300. Yeah. And as you said, a third of America was watching sometimes half. Half of the viewing public were watching the show. So it, it was it was a very, as was then and is now, it's a very powerful medium. Yeah, and I got to say, I mean, I loved the family dynamic. I loved Nick's dynamic. I loved, you know, man, I was doing research, and I'm going to feel, I'm going to get called out for being a, a candy ass here, but <laughs> not by you maybe, but by others. But, I, you know, I got to tell you, and that's, I was doing research, Scott. I was in tears last night because here I am. I'm watching scenes. There's an awesome one with Nick at the table. There's one, the last, the last one where 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 um, uh, Michael J. Fox is, you know, uh, Alex is leaving to go to New York, uh, ironically, uh, and um, you know he has this great conversation with Meredith, and it's just so powerful, man. It's it's the power of the show, Scott, but it's also the power of the memories behind that. Like I think back to that time. And and I think back to the show. I don't know. It's just like it's a double hit. It's like when I watch Star Wars or Wonder Years. It's the it's a it's a phenomenal show, but it's also a different time. It's the memories that come with that time. Does that make any sense to you, or am I just gushing like an idiot for no reason? No, no. It's it, we all do that. 
you watch that show, any show, right? It's like looking at a picture from your life because you, if you were a fan, it harkens you back to a time, a place, what clothes you wore, what music you listened to, what food you ate, what girl you thought was cute, who your friends were, all of that. And to be able, what's kind of missing now, and I don't want to sound old, although I am getting older, um, it's like that whole adage of being the family having dinner every night around the dinner table was the communal event and everybody. And now we're, we're so divested. We're so scattered and going hither and yon at the time when there was only three networks or four networks, it was a communal event. It was the, you know, the metaphoric water cooler conversation the next day and had a profound effect upon us. I mean, look at the, look at, we followed Cosby. Look at how significant Cosby was. Mm. Our culture to our, our, our country. And now it's kind of a shame. Years later, you realize the guy that everybody looked up to and thought was sort of like America's dad um, was actually a predator. A pig, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and a yeah. pig. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of the great thing with family ties, it's very unfortunate what has happened to Michael with the Parkinson's. But as with everything I imagine in his life, he has risen to the occasion and has been a beacon for hope and a beacon of how to how to live your life, how to how to traverse this this unpleasant road. Yeah. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you about that in a second, about the politics sure. of that show, because I think it's very important. What I, I think the show was more groundbreaking. People give it credit for. But, I, but back to your – I love what you just said about, you know, the family dynamic at the dinner table. I was As I was going through a lot of these old – you know, I was watching Amazon uh, Prime, which has uh, family ties, by the way, for those of you that want to watch it, all seven seasons. But it, but there was comments under the, some of the YouTube, you know, some of the clips, and somebody wrote a perfect thing about the 80s. We had technology, but not enough so it ruined our lives. Like he was talking about the beauty of the 80s, right? I feel like – that dynamic of the you know of the family watching TV together, the family mm. sitting at the table, has been destroyed by technology at this point. I really do, and I feel like the '80s still had that innocence about it that the yeah. '50s and the '60s and the '70s had. And I think that comment really put things in perspective for me, Scott. If we could just and look, I'm just as guilty. We all have got our face in our smartphone. Absolutely, or, me too. Yep. Or we have our face in our computer. Um, my kids, they don't, they each have a, you know, a large screen TV and a computer and a, and a handheld device. And they're watching the handheld device probably more than anything. And it's just, it's kind of, it's very intriguing to see where we will go. What, what will happen? What will this lead to societally? Um, it's very, very intriguing and in a way sad because I can't say as much as it, it was a, a communal atmosphere and a great place for the family to come together. My kids are grown now. Their their youngest one's twenty one, oldest is thirty three, and we didn't have a lot of dinners sitting around the table singing kumbaya. Um, it's it's maybe we should maybe we should come up with a national policy, Derek, where no <laughs> phones from this time to that time, and you got to sit and you got to talk to your sister, you got to talk to your mom, you got to talk. There's there's something. About that one-on-one communication, face-to-face, and those that, uh, and, and those are the memories, man, that I'm talking about. Like I remember watching with my dad and my mom and my sister. Like we were just there was something so beautiful and innocent, you know. And here you have this. Think about how crazy this is. You have this family that is so far left, you know, Mister and Missus Keaton, so far left, 
And you have Alex that couldn't be further right. And everyone loves this family. Like, that show, you can't ever have something like that ever again because people would get too, you know, into the politics. And then I, I thought I read something online where Reagan wanted to be on the show. He loved it so much. So it's like, I don't think we'll ever see something like this again, Scott. I, I, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the show and I'm speaking with you. But I'm telling you, man, I don't, th- this is a lost time. And it's, it's, and it's kind of a little bit depressing because I feel like it worked so well. Yeah, yeah. And not because it was Family Ties. Look, the same. It wasn't just Family Ties. We had it with Cosby. We had it with Cheers. Um, and maybe to a certain degree in the beginning of Friends because there was still a limited amount of networks where people could get visual content from. And it was the advent. Remember, VHS was just going from VHS to DVD in the 90s. It was still a time for us to sit around and have a communal experience. Um, and I don't think it'll ever happen again. I agree with you. Kind of, yeah. kind of a shame because it was such a, 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 there was such a sense of community, such a sense of belonging, you know. And the and, show, and the show talked about politics without having people attack each other. Where you know Cosby's show was more race when after you know pointed out the flaws of race i mean it wasn't you know all in the family but it was you know it, it was a vi- people loved that show and i don't know i mean where friends was a little goofy but i just i i feel i don't know i feel like that's such a lost lost time and you know like so let's even like this so like you have the keatons who are very far left and then nick comes to the ta- obviously you know the scene comes to the table with mallory and she's introducing him, and everyone's looking at Nick like he's got three heads. You know, like he's, <laughs> like, he's, like, he's this, like he's this fucking idiot, right? And, dude, you handled that scene so perfectly, you know? And I was just watching, you know, you had the, you had your plate, you had the corn. You were like, you could tell, like, I mean, if I, knew, if I didn't know I was watching a show, I would totally be hook, line, sinker, believing that this is something that actually happened. And, you know, Alex throws a cheap shot at Nick, and you come back at Alex. <laughs> I don't know, man. That was just such an awesome scene. You know the scene I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. It was a great scene. Great yeah. writing. Great, great writing. Look, in Meredith's reaction and her deliverance of lines in that scene, Michael Gross's, uh, Michael Fox's. Uh, come on, those guys were point on. I never thought I could do comedy, brother. Never. I wanted, to do, I wanted to do Greek tragedies and Shakespeare and come to L.A. and I get a, and I get a sitcom. And it was just... It was crazy. And the ability to do that was a function of the people behind the camera, the people putting the words on the page, and the people executing. Uh, and, and to have Michael Fox is very good at what he does. Michael yeah. Fox and Gary Goldberg had a true, which is very rarely happens in any situation. You know, when there's like a receiver and a quarterback or a pitcher and a, and a, and a catcher or you know, there's there's that yin and the yang. There there are companies. You look at um, what it took to launch Microsoft between those two fellows. So there was a, a great symbiotic, uh, interwoven, truly not just attached by the hip and not attached by the synapses, but by the heart as well with Gary and with Michael. And that was that was the the beauty of that show. And to be able to come and walk into a situation like that, I, I have forever been grateful. Very lucky. Very, very lucky. You know, it's hard to get a show on a show. It's hard to get a show on air. But to be able to come out and get on a show that's already on air and successful, I was one lucky son of a gun. 
Very nah, I, I don't think you were lucky. I think I think you had it right the first time you said it earlier, where um, you were you were a guy who deserved to be an actor who deserved who 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 should have been there, and, and I'm I'm a firm belief of that. Was wasn't Family Ties? Wasn't that Gary Goldberg's life? Am I wrong with that? No, you're right. Absolutely, him and Diane, um, which Gary passed a few years ago. Uh, I'm not sure about Diane, what what her health condition is at this moment, but that was uh, that was Gary and Diane and their life. Yep. And, and I got to tell you what else this show had. I mean, outside of the wonderful, and I'm going to ask you about your favorite memory in a second. But uh, you know, the, the curtain call in the last episode. You don't see that in shows, man. Like you don't see like I was watching you in that curtain call. I must have watched it five times. That three minute clip. And you uh-huh. looked so happy to be there. Like, it wasn't fake. Everyone was so happy to just, all the cast was, it's just, I don't know, man. Like, even that current call was, like, you got the loudest cheer. People were cheering. You, everyone's coming out. Like, the last hurrah. What a beautifully, like, that, that show was classy to the end, Scott. To the end. <laughs> you know what I was thinking in that moment? Ah, oh, shit, I got to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of work. You know, every actor, when people, it's a funny thing is when you go off and do other series or other movies and you're thinking, oh, it's a lot of fun. It's great. And you're just about wrapping it up. Everything. Well, I'm glad this is getting wrapped up. And you're thinking in your head, damn, I'm out of work again. I got to go get a job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, what, was it a family atmosphere away from the camera too, Scott? Was it, you know, Meredith and Teeny others and Michael J. Fox and Michael Gross and Justine Bateman? Was it, was it a very friendly atmosphere away from the, you know, behind the camera. Very much so. Very much so. I mean, <clears throat> you think about it, Gary was instrumental in having Paramount Studios put a daycare center on the lot. And that was specifically so Meredith could bring her, her kids that she bore, that she was pregnant and bore while she was on the show <clears throat> to the, you know, to the lot to have her children right there. Uh, obviously initially they had, special accommodations. I think they turned one of the dressing rooms into a nursery for her kids. But him leading that charge presented a, what, an environment and a situation that was routed firmly in children and and parents being with their children and giving their children love. I was able to bring my kids to the daycare center. Think how cool that was. You're on TV and you're driving your kids to work and you're dumping them off at the daycare center and when you had a five-minute break or a lunch break, you got to go over and hang with your kid. You know, most folks on most TV shows, you leave early in the morning. You don't come home until, you know, the sun is set and you get to see your children maybe for a moment if they're still awake. Um, and it was, it was, it was quite a, a, a familial environment that was created by, you know, there's that expression, the fish stinks from the head. Right. Well, the fish also smells very sweet from the head. And right. Gary, very much family, very much family. And if you had a problem, something going on that you needed to talk to somebody sort of as a, as a big brother or as a mentor in a way, Gary's door was always open, always. Just a sweetheart of a guy. Yeah, and, I hate, to keep, yeah, and I hate to keep going back to this curtain call, but he was part of that as well. <clears throat> and, and, and here I am watching you interact with, with castmates, and then I'm watching – you know, Meredith and Michael, they have this hug that seemingly goes on during the whole, and they're both like so moved and like, 
I don't know, man. It's it, for those of you that want to see what I'm talking about. It's the curtain call. It's the last episode of of of, um, of Family Ties. You <clears throat> could just tell, man. People were just moved beyond belief, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you know, on the topic of of, of this, you know, you, you, I feel like you're hard on yourself because I watched interviews and you're like, they pay. And maybe these are old and you know older and you've changed your mind, but you're like, they pay me a lot of money to grunt. I feel like Nick was so much more than that. Like I feel like in the wrong hands. Like if Sylvester Stallone was Nick, that was what it would have been. But you brought so <laughs> much. You, you brought so much to that character, man. Like you brought like. You made Nick Nick, and it was so much more than grunting. And I'll go back to the scene at the table. Like, Michael, um, Michael, uh, um, yeah, Michael Gross is asking you, uh, you know, he's asking about your education in school, and, and you kind of come up it's, and basically said, well, I don't, nah, it's not for me. He's like, what do you, well, when school, what does that mean? He goes, well, you said, well, when school is going on, I'm not there. Like, I don't know, man. Like, it's, you created Nick more. Like, you created that. That wasn't, anybody could have read that script. You made it your own which was i thought phenomenal man thank you very much thank you i've always um don't want to blow my own horn don't want i think it's actually i'm I'm always i was going into uh other actors homes that have been lucky enough to have their face on a poster or on a one sheet and always found it very uncomfortable to go into somebody's home and to have all that hanging and that extends i think to your your life and how you interact with the world. Um, look, there, there are people, my career has taken me to other industries away from Hollywood, away from entertainment. And there are other folks that have done some pretty phenomenal things that benefit us societally that I think, God, we should, we should be having award shows for them. We should, they should be hanging, you know, this engineer, they came up with a way of being able to clean uh, water and make it potable and, and usable again. We, we we should have an award show for that guy, you know, mm, or, or, mm. or the woman that came up with some some sort of medicine that cured an ill. Uh, there should be we should have a special night where we're all in, you know. Uh, where we're all sorry. You're OK. OK, whatever. Some some big concert hall or venue and, and cheering them on because they have helped uh, society and. I just it's 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 very complimentary what you're saying. I'm rather appreciative. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Is there a memory you have that sticks with you? Like, is there a memory you brought? I mean, obviously, there's you've had four years worth of memories, but is there one in particular that stands out, whether it's on a scene or not? You know, you know, something that was that Gary did or one of the cast did. Is there anything that that you you think about? Actually, no. I, I I'm I um no no no. <clears throat> it was look it was such a crazy time too life was moving at 2000 miles an hour not only getting on a show that was that popular but getting married having children buying a house it was it was just wow it just flew um and it's funny with my children <clears throat> and with other folks in their 20s early 30s i'm like don't <laughs> don't wait to do the bucket list don't save mm-hmm. for a rainy day. Don't put off that trip until do it now because life just it fleets. It just flies. And do it when you're young, when you're healthy, when you can drink it in and enjoy it all. Just reach out, grab life by both cheeks and give it a big, fat, wet kiss. So oh, That's uh, really well said. Have your own boys watched all seven seasons, Scott? Your own kids? 
<laughs> they don't give a damn, Derek. <laughs> oh man, uh, I, I like, would make it mandatory it, viewing. No, what's funny now is one of my sons started a job at a um, medical company, um, and when he went in for the interview, he said, "I never mentioned who you, my dad is and what you did. I wanted to get hired on my own merit." And uh, after about three months of working at the company, they figured out who his dad is. And the CEO of the company is a huge fan of mine to the point where there were movies that I did that he said, I went to the theater. I went four times to see that movie. I paid to see it and, uh, and started quoting lines from Family Ties verbatim. Um, so then my son was like, God, I should have whipped this out before. Look at all the bennies I'm getting because I'm your kid. <laughs> and then my other son, the youngest one who's in his, uh, I'm very proud to say in his junior year at UCLA. And no, I did not have to pay anybody for him to get in. He did it on his own. Great school. His own volition. Yep. Great school. I'm so proud of him. So proud of him. But he was working his job at the uh, pizza parlor. And uh, the folks who own it didn't know who his dad was. And then learned one day, the one of the owners, a woman who's in her 50s, he's like, Dad, she went nuts. She was like crazy for you. She was like, <laughs> I didn't realize what a big shot you were. I'm like, yeah, that was then. This is now, buddy. He's like, you were popular. You were like really like, I'm like, yeah, back in the day, I was. You know, you <laughs> Yeah, and I got to tell you, man, you did an interview in 86 with these two news anchors that I swear to God, Scott, are right out of the Ron Burgundy school of news anchors. When you started to speak, <laughs> when you started to speak, the what the guy looks at the girl and goes, oh, my God, he doesn't talk like Nick. Like, and he wasn't joking. Like, he was he was serious. He's like, he doesn't say, hey. Like, I'm like, this guy, is this guy for real? Like, did he really think that that's that was who you were? Because like you started to speak and you speak very eloquently, you were you were using words I don't think he expected you to use. Like I, I don't know, man. It's not, that clip is also on YouTube. Very funny watch. Like you did a good job of really maintaining yourself and being classy. But there and the, the, the I think the female uh, anchor asked you like How old are you? Like stuff you would never do in an interview. You never ask somebody their age. You would never assume somebody's in like a, like this a grunt or whatever. Like do you remember that interview? I, I, I don't remember that one specifically, but there were a lot at that time. I, I, I do remember another interview. We were visiting my ex-wife's um, family up in the Detroit suburb. And her grandparents lived in a, uh, a what are they called, modular home? What, yep. We, what we called trailer parks growing up. Um, yeah. And now double wide or whatever. And she's like, I want to stay there. I want to be with my grandparents. I want them. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so the girl from the local newspaper came, somehow learned I was in town and came to interview me and was just being a rude son of a gun. <laughs> Good catch, yeah. <laughs> and, and just was making all sorts of assumptions with regard to me and, you know, how I got where I was and yada, yada. And, and at a certain point I said, you don't know anything about me, do you? Well, yeah, I do. You're on a TV show. I said, yeah, but you don't know where I came from. You don't know anything I've been through. You have no idea of any of that, do you? She said no. And so I told her pretty much in a synopsis of what you and I've discussed for the past half hour here. And she got rather embarrassed and was somewhat humble and wound up apologizing to me and just saying, I've, I've been so rude. I didn't know that you've been through what you've been through. I didn't know that you 
went to school as you did. And I said, well, you know, next time, don't be so judgmental. You don't want people to do that to you. Don't do it to people. Right. Be nice. Be right. open. You know, give people right. a chance. Yeah. So right. there was a lot of that. Yeah, there was a lot. And now and I it, get in business, now being an uh, investment banker, when people find out what I did, you know, 30 years ago, I still get, oh, my God, you're that guy? And you talk like this? And we thought, I thought you were really dumb. I was like, yeah, okay, there's this thing. It's called acting. You know, so. <laughs> you know and, and there's so much here. Like, so I cannot believe, and this is my last Family Ties thing, that the show is 30 years old. The finale aired May 14th of 89. To me, it's like you had that great quote earlier where you said, if there's something you want to do, do it now. The fact that I'm talking to you about a show that's 30 years old that I feel like I was just watching yesterday is, I think, proof positive of how fast time flies. It just flies, brother. It does. Yeah. And it, it flies. Yeah. It does. I mean, look at how old you are. I don't know. You know, you're married, kids, or whatever. Just whatever it is, don't wait. Don't yeah. wait. Yeah. Do it you're now. right. You're whatever right. you can, go do it. You know, if it's that trip to Alaska, if it's to go fishing for you know, uh, salmon up in a river in Alaska, do it, go for it. Grab and you, and they get, they did offer you and you had some bad luck here again, but, but oh, it was definitely please. based, based on your <laughs> talent. No, because this, this, the three spinoffs you had did really well. Like you had bad luck because, you know, Herschel had a heart attack, but you know, th th they were well received. They did really well with viewership. I thought, I think the pilot for the art of Nick did really well. Uh, talk a little about that because Scott, that was, that that's proof positive again of your the character you created and how how it really resonated with people that were watching TV at the time. They they liked Nick Moore. He was a popular character. They liked Nick. They did. They did. They liked Nick. After the first year, they wanted to do a spinoff and they did a show with me and Herschel Bernardi. I don't know if your listeners will remember him or know of him. Uh, I, Le I legend legendary actor. The voice of Charlie Tuna. Remember that? And, yes. Uh, yep. I think he won an Academy Award for what was it, uh, Joe Gunn? Um, yes. Yeah. He he was in so so many things. I was looking today. He's in it's like a ridiculous amount of his IMDb is unbelievable. Just and also a sweetheart of a guy. Just a, yeah. just a wonderful human being. <clears throat> we shot the pilot. Um, got done. Everybody was out. You know, all gaga. It's great. It's wonderful. It's going to be a big hit. We started doing all sorts of uh, publicity shoots. And they're like, it's going to get picked up. You know, we're going into, we're going to give a full order for a full season. And then I get a call one morning goes, Hesh died. What? Yeah, he died. What? And he died while having a bowel movement at three in the morning on the toilet. What a way to go. Oh, man. Oh, I don't want to go like that. Uh, no. I'd rather, I'd rather have, I go parachuting and have my parachute not open up or something, but not on the toilet. <coughs> no way. But, uh, That's a tough way to go. And it was like, well, do we recast or what we do? And they're like, no, 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 no. We'll write another one. You come back on the show this year. We'll do another one next year. So they did a second one, and they it never even got to shooting. Um, I don't want to say who the showrunners were. The writers met with them. Very nice people. They already had a couple of shows on TV. And when they submitted the script, I read it, and I was like, really? I can't do this. This is This is... And actually, they had something. At the core of the premise was something similar to um, Friends, what Friends is. Mm. That, there could have been fertile ground, but the other elements and how they presented it was so unfathomable 
and I said, nobody's going to believe this. It's got, there's no, we're not routed in reality here. It, it's too, you know, folks need to be able to relate to it so they can associate and love it. You know, a lot of times we love movies, we love plays, we love TV shows because we can relate to the characters and what they're going through. And I felt that it was unrelatable and talked to Gary and I'm like, look, I can't. Mm. He's like, okay, I get it. No problem. And then the next year we did a pilot and the lead character uh, aside from me was Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who's just a sweetheart of a person. Uh, I've seen her throughout the years, her kids, her and Brad's kids played ball at the same park that my kid did. And for somebody coming where she came from and the amount of success she's had, she's very humble, very nice, extremely classy, just, just a, a wonderful human being. Super talented too. Super, talented. super talented, super talented. So, um, we did the show once again, everybody's, Oh, it's great. It's hilarious. And, and, and Julie is one of those persons kind of like Michael Fox. They could make reading of the Manhattan white pages. Funny. Like, right. right. She's, she's that good. Um, and the showrunner was Bruce Halford. Now, Bruce Halford went on to showrun Drew Carey's show, Roseanne Barr's show the first time around, Roseanne Barr's show the next time around, um, Charlie Sheen's show after he was the bad boy and they did the show on for Fox, I think it was. Um, and Bruce is an extremely credible, talented, funny guy. Um, he was the showrunner. And, um, it was just, it was, a, it was a great vibe. Once again, it was a good, you really want a feeling, or I want a feeling on a set that it, it's camaraderie. It's kumbaya. We're all pulling for each other, you know? Yeah. And, and so, now I, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, um, shot the show and we're hearing all this titterings of like, it's getting picked up. It's getting picked up. And the next thing I get a call from my agent and they say, they don't want the show. What do you mean they don't want the show? It tested through the roof. And I still have it. One of my assistants who worked for me actually uh, took the page from Variety or whatever publication when they actually aired the show and the ratings it got. And I think still to this day it has the highest ratings of any pilot that was never picked up. It had like a 47 share or something like that. Wow. And wow. I never, never knew what happened. And then a few years later, I was having lunch with Bruce one day, Bruce Halford. He's, he said, well, you know, it's really a shame that Gary and uh, Brandon got into that fight. What fight? Well, you know, the fight. What fight? The fight about your show. No, what fight? And there was, uh, there was an incident where Gary had made an agreement with NBC Productions to do shows with, for Ubu. But part of the deal was NBC insisted that the shows be shot at the NBC studios in Burbank, not on the Paramount lot to save money. Now, mind you, there's a thing when you're working as an actor, and I don't know if this extends to the other on-set guilds, that after a certain amount of time, you must be fed. And it's a good thing because there's a lot of, uh, what, unscrupulous producers that would grind their crew and talent into the ground. Mm. So after a certain amount of time, you have to have a meal. And I, I remember the first time they came around on Family Ties and said, will you waive your meal penalty? I'm like, what's a meal penalty? Okay, you wave it. <laughs> no, what is it? And it was, you know, if you don't eat at this certain time, the show will be penalized a lot of money. Like every 15 minutes, there's another uh, fine that goes against the show unless you waive it. 
and the thinking was, it, you know, as with any creative process, whether you're painting, playing music, dancing, whatever it is, it takes a while to get into the groove, especially when there's multiple parties. And once you hit that groove, you don't want to fuck with it. You want to keep things flowing. Right. So, um, so they were shooting a show up at NBCP, <clears throat> and they finally got into the groove. And this was a three-camera or four-camera show in front of a live audience. Um, and the on a on a sitcom of that sort, the the first AD, the first and assistant director, is actually called the stage manager. And he or she goes, "Okay, meal break." And apparently, and I'm not, I wasn't there, so I cannot quote or cite what happened verbatim. Only secondhand what was told to me. And when they said, you know, time for meal break, Gary's like, "No, no, 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 let's keep going. We're just getting it. Let's keep going." And the crew was like, no, we're not. I want my meal. I'm not. What am I doing anything for you? Now, my assumption is Gary took care of his crews on the Paramount lot. That he made sure that they were all rewarded handsomely. Yeah, as he did sounds- every. But at NBC, they're getting paid by NBC. And I'm not sure if NBC was owned by GE at the time. But, you know, the big corporation, they really don't give a flying fuck. Right, right. It's. Do you work for us? This is what you get paid. No, we're not incurring any penalties. And it says meal break, meal break. People don't want to waive the meal penalty. They don't. So the crew insisted upon taking their break, and Gary and Brandon got into a, a scuffle. And not just verbiage, but just sort of grabbing and shoving each other. Wow. And at a certain point, somebody said, I don't know who it was, well, you know, I don't want your show, or you can't have my show, or I don't want your show. And the show they were talking about was The Art of Being Nick with me and uh, Julia. And so we became the the political ping pong ball tossed back and forth, and it was the big fuck you. And they both, well, fuck you, I'm not doing it. Now, mind you, after the fact, and Gary and Brandon are both dead now, it was the old Hollywood, put your arm around it, don't worry, you're part of the family, we'll take care of you. And I never, never got taken care of. It was... Uh, there were other things that happened. There was a show that uh, Ubu was going to do with David Hume Kennelly called the sh- called uh, Shooter, which David Hume Kennelly was a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, and it was a, a show based upon him, and I wanted to do it. And I'd met with Gary, and met with Kennelly, had met with whoever the, the executive producer was, and they're like, okay, you're the guy, you're the guy. And then I get a call from my agent one day going, uh, what's going on with you and Gary? What do you mean? And my agent was Lee Brillstein, Bernie Brillstein's daughter. Mm. And Lee was just a force. She was a, a major, she could be a major bitch to folks. And if she was your bitch, it was great because she was in your corner and she was in my corner. And she said, I told you we should get paperwork. No paperwork. They gave the role to somebody else. I'm like, oh, what the fuck? Um, and then Brandon had actually uh, had another show and I was put in that show. Totally miscast. Totally wrong. With the girl Lauren Graham, I think uh, she went on to do that show, the Mother Daughter Show. Um, I can't even remember the name of the show, but Lauren was the lead with Steve. Steve, what's his name from Barney Miller? Do you remember Barney Miller? Oh yeah, oh great theme. Um, yeah, uh, the white guy with the sort of blondish red hair talked really slow. Was a comedian, Steve. I can't remember his name. And I did a sitcom with them, and I was totally miscast. I was cast as the, as the, uh, I think the mayor or something like that. Steve Landisberg, is that it? Yeah, Steve Landisberg. There you okay. go. Yeah. Yep. And the show, 
my ignorance, Derek, what I did in my career was once again, I'm going, I'm Scott Valentine, the actor, the thespian, you know, and I'm coming from New York in one season you're doing again, Shakespeare, the next season, maybe you're doing John Guare, the next season, maybe you're doing Moliere and you go from play to play to play to play. And you were judged on your talents, not on your bankability. Um, the thing is, as much as I'm not a fan of him because I don't like his politics, uh, uh, what's the actor? He did all the spaghetti westerns and now he's a director. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Eastwood. Um, Clint Eastwood is very smart. He still plays the same character he played when he was doing those Italian spaghetti westerns. The roguish, disenfranchised loner who wanted to be the equalizer. Yep. And if you look at every movie he's directed, that's a theme that runs through every one of the movies as well. So he was very good in growing his persona, his character, but also extremely good at not alienating his audience. I believe, in looking back at it, that my audience fell in love with sort of a monosyllabic, grunting, lovable idiot that actually came out with words of wisdom every now and then. And I should have stayed more something germane to that, not gone off and played architects or doctors or vampires, you know, shit like that. But right. Live and learn, brother. Live and learn. Nobody held a gun to my head and said I had to do those other parts. So. No, it's, it's so easy to look in the rear view, man. And, and, and I got to tell you, you know, and I do want to just touch quickly because you've given me so much of your time here, um, your, your career as an investment banker and producer. But I can't let this one go without talking about it. Dude, good for you being in Playgirl. Dude, I can't even take off my shirt going. Dude, dude, I wish I had the guts to take. I can't even take my shirt off at the beach. I'm so insecure. Look, look, dude, that's like a huge. That's a huge achievement, man. That's awesome. Like that, you have the picture there. If you have it, I've seen it. Yes, I've seen, seen it. it. Next time, if you ever see it again, look at my left pectoral compared to my right pectoral. I believe it was the early days of maybe Photoshop. And it looks like, I don't know which one, one of my pecs looks like I have elephantitis of the pectoral. It's hilarious. <laughs> well, anytime, you're, anytime your kids give you shit, it's like, hold on. Your dad was in play. Your dad was in Playgirl. Enough said. Drop the mic and walk away. <laughs> no, no, no. There's been many a times where, again, do they care about what shows I did or what, you know? No, but there's like, ooh, you were in Playgirl. You were in play, And it's, it's <laughs> Especially when they were teenagers, a lot of laughs and a lot of making fun of dad. Which, uh, what the hell? It was, it was, it was fun. The, it was- the one thing that really surprised me about your life, Scott—not that I wasn't expect—I well, wasn't expecting it—is how many, well, one voiceover things you've done, but more specifically, superhero themed voiceover work. You've done a lot, and that doesn't even include Phantom Twenty Forty, which is I want, which is what I want to kind of end on the interview with, but. Yeah, man, you did. You've done a lot of voice work in your career. I was not expecting that. Like, loved it. Loved, is, loved is it. that is that the dream job for an actor is to tack that, like, to get that voice work? Not that it's easier. I'm not saying that because, it's, uh, it's, dude, it's so easy. It's so, and I should have kept doing it, but I got. I have a bad quality, Derek. If something gets too easy, I'm like, okay, we need a new challenge. Let's go. This is ah, uh, okay. And I should have stayed with the mentality of like, okay, it's working. They're hiring you. What the hell? Take the money. It's easy. Um. But to do, to work on, you know, Batman, Superman with those writers was just, just a complete thrill. But as you said, Phantom 2040, if you look at the cast of that from Ron Perlman. Oh my God, unbelievable cast. 
Mark, uh, Mark Hamill, uh, Deborah Harry, Margot uh, Kidder, Margot Kidder, Carrie Snodgrass, Pam Segal, now goes Paul Williams, Paul Williams, Paul, Paul Williams, who's still a buddy, is just a sweetheart of a guy. Great just actor, absolute sweetheart, big talent. If you look at, you look at his career and how many songs that he's written that have been turned to gold, have gone to number one, sung by other people, but written by him. Extremely talented guy. Very bright. Very, very bright. You know, um, just a lot of fun. A lot of fun. A lot, a lot of fun. It was a hilarious story. One day we're taping uh, uh, Phantom 2040. Carrie was there. Margo was there. Pam was there. And uh, Leah Ramini. Oh, okay. Ramini, yeah. Right? Yep. Yep. The four girls start getting into a, a dispute, sort of a fun jocular dispute as to who who could fuck their man the best. <laughs> <laughs> and then they all start claiming they've got this special move that does this special trick for their guy. And the next thing you know, all four of them are down on the floor in the middle of the recording studio thrusting their pelvises towards the heavens. And it was just hilarious, hilarious. Hilarious. The funny, there was one of the fellows in the cast who was very religious, and he wasn't so happy about the girls getting on the floor and thrusting their pelvises towards the heavens. It was just, it was a lot of fun. Loved yeah. that job. Loved it. Uh, Loved yeah. it. And the cast, like you said, is unbelievable. And so, man, that's, I mean, so do you ever, I mean, I saw something you did recently. It was a short film, Scott. It was about, um, and, I should know the name of it. Um, the, the, I think a kid carries a, Dan, a Danny DeVito cutout oh around. Oh, my God. I loved that. Yes, yes. Now, we have a production company. We have a distribution company as well. Yep. And uh, we're launching our own OTT. And my partner in that is a guy named Larry Meistrich. Larry uh, produced Sling Blade. Uh, which obviously won an Academy Award. Oh, fantastic. He's got an Academy Award for, I can't remember the other film. Larry's just a great guy. Just a, a great, great, great fucking guy. Honest, hardworking, super smart, super fair. And he also teaches uh, some at Johns Hopkins and then some at the local uh, high school where his kids were going. And it's a great way to sort of keep an keep an eye on your kids why not teach a class there right he had a film mm-hmm. class and they said well we need somebody to play a dad and i played the dad of uh stephen colbert's kid john and i tell you that kid's talented he's got a career if he wants a career regardless of who his dad is he's got a career in front of him <clears throat> extremely good looking very bright very Got a just a, a really good head on his shoulders, just a good human being, which is a true reflection of, of his parents, uh, which Steve and I can't remember his wife. Very nice folks. Really nice. Um, so, yeah, it was it was it was one of those come and act, you know, and I, I just acting for me now isn't what it was. Uh, you sort of realize it's not the end all and be all that there are many more uh, horizons out there to go traverse and learn about. Um, but that was a lot of fun. Mind you, I was sick, sick as a dog when we shot that too. So if you look at it, I look like shit, but it was, but it was fun. No, I'm happy that you're still acting. And I mean, and it's great to see that you've got so many things going. You, you mentioned your production company, your producer, you're an investment banker. You got, you got all this going for you. So 
you never get too content with one thing because you, you're moving on to the next thing. So that's you're the kind of person that would flourish in that. Like you need to have all those things. So that's that's a good thing, right, Scott? That's a great thing. I just love. There are so many things out there to learn, Derek. There are so many challenges, and I think if once we stop learning, that's when we die. And and I think right up until the time we're pushing up petunias, we should still be pushing our boundaries and trying to learn more and grasp more knowledge. Keep your ego parked in your back pocket and uh, listen to other folks who know more than you and grow, grow and learn. You know? Yeah, man, this is, this is one of my favorite interviews. You're just so open and honest, man. I, and I can't thank you enough, man. And, and thank you for letting me gush. Cause I mean, I got to tell you, you know, there's people that were watching, and I hate to go back to this again because you've done so much, but people that were watching Family Ties that didn't have a family and connected with the Keatons, connected with Nick, and uh, for a generation of people, man, I, I got to tell you, thank you for everything you've done. You you really have accomplished a lot, and you're still going, so that's it's awesome to see you still kicking ass. So, Scott, thank you so much, my friend. Derek, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I look forward to sitting down and uh, breaking bread and uh, bending a few elbows with you and... Uh, Telling tall tales we can't tell over the airwaves. Hey, this is really nice. Uh, you guys eat like this all the time? You mean with utensils? <laughs> Don't mind Alex, he's a little strange. Hey, he's all right. He's a cute little guy. He's just... <laughs> he's just a little stiff is all. You know what you could use, Alex? No, no, what could I use, Nick? An earring. <laughs> nah. Nah, I don't, I don't think so. Oh, really? Get you loose. Here. No, 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 Nick. I enjoy being tight. <laughs> are you interested in, Nick? I'm interested in Mallory. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how about school? How about school? Uh, do you go to school? No. Uh, can you expand on that? Yeah, like, uh, when school's on, I'm not there. <laughs> ah. Really, Dad? I mean, there are other things to talk about besides school. No one's even asked him about his art. Hey, it's okay. No, you love to talk about your art. Dad, ask him. Um, so, uh, Nick, um, how did you get interested in this environmental art? I don't know. <laughs> uh, can you expand on that? I don't know. Good. Uh, uh, get, getting back to the school issue. No, come on, Dad. Nick was talking about art. You interrupted him. Sorry, Nick. Uh, didn't mean to cut you off like that. Uh, wh what were you going to say after I don't know? I don't remember. Right here. Yep. <laughs> you know, environmental art isn't the only thing Nick knows about. 
He has a wide range of interests. Here's a thought that just occurred to me, Nick. Don't you think a person needs an education? Not every person. Not every person? Come on, Dad. Excuse me, Mallory. How can a person make a living without an education? I don't know. Why don't you ask somebody who's educated? I don't think a person needs an education to answer that question. Can you tell these peas are fresh? <laughs> I guess what I really want to know, hey, Nick... Is... look, I was invited here for a meal, you know, but this doesn't feel like a meal. It feels like a test. You know, I'm sorry I'm not the kind of guy you're looking for. I'm not smart, I'm not cultured, and I'm not sophisticated. You know, I'm not no Charles Bronson. <laughs>